Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio? A very frigid Jason Rosenbaum. Very frigid. And? Uh, Joe Manis. And our special guest this week? Christine Ingracia. An alderwoman in St. Louis City. How long have you been an alderwoman, actually? It hasn't been that long, has it? Not quite two years. Not quite two years. This is the sixth ward, which has moved a lot in recent years. Right. So the sixth ward is made up of parts of nine neighborhoods. We've got uh, downtown West, Midtown, Lafayette Square, Clinton Peabody, the Gate District, Compton Hill, Compton Heights, Tower Grove East, and Fox Park. And so a, a little bit of everywhere. A quiz. We will have a quiz at the end of the show. <laughs> yes. And Lafayette, you said Lafayette Square, right? Correct. I think yeah. she did, yeah. I was actually married in the Sixth Ward at Squire's Restaurant, so the Sixth Ward holds a, a very special place in my heart. So. I would like to think it does for everyone yes. as well. Even if they weren't married there. So how did you end up being the older one for the Sixth Ward? That's a really good question I still ask myself sometimes. I was doing community outreach in the Sixth Ward, um, predominantly doing some grant writing and implementation of programs for a nonprofit that was affiliated with the former alderwoman, and she resigned unexpectedly, and um, I kind of thought about it and decided to throw my hat in the ring, and won with about 51% of the vote in a three-way race against a gentleman who is our committee man, Damon Jones, very nice guy, very politically connected, um, so politically connected and um, favored that everyone assumed automatically that I would lose to him. And then Michelle Whithouse, who graciously agreed to work with me after I got elected on her idea about participatory budgeting. And to to just kind of uh, exemplify how politically connected Damon Jones is, his father is Michael Jones, the former St. Louis County Policy Director for Charlie Dooley, and his mother is former Senator Robin Wright Jones. So politics literally runs in his blood. And I believe Michael Jones was a former alderman himself. Yes, yeah, yeah, he was in the... I be, this is before you guys were alive. I actually covered Joe, him. You got to stop doing that. I know. No, but it's true. It's true. Hey, I'm not gonna you know lie about it. Anyways, the late '70s, Mike Jones. That, that's when I first met him. He was when he was elected to the board of aldermen late '70s, and I was covering the board of aldermen at the time. If it makes you feel better, I I was alive then. <laughs> Very small, but I was I was alive. But kind of go back to that race for a second, because while I did not write like thousands of words on it, I did interview all three of you for that race when I was, we were with the Beacon, and I think there might have been an expectation that that Jones was favored. Number one, because he was a committee man. Number two, that he already had worked on campaigns before. Number three could have been because of the racial dynamics of the district. Uh, he's African American. The district is about sixty percent African American, and there were two white candidates. And and lo and behold, you won by a pretty sizable margin. When fifty one percent with three candidates is 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 a quasi landslide yeah. in many respects. Because that means the other three split forty nine percent. So what do you think, kind of? What do you think kind of happened to where you, you won so decisively? Was it just that you had a, had a good message? Was it just that, you know, the, the chips fall, fell where they may? Or was it that, that forum you were at where there was hula hooping going on and limericks and you, uh, you, you might have done a poem that excited the masses or something like I'm that? I'm sure if the race would have been decided on the trail net talent contest, Michelle would have won because she skateboarded while hula hooping. Uh, and I, I pulled some cheesy jokes about politicians off the internet because yeah. I'm not really particularly talented at, at, at anything, really. Um, but, you know, to your question, Jason, I didn't realize when I was doing community outreach work and volunteering in my neighborhood that I was setting myself up 
kind of to be able to win a political election because I was never really thinking about winning. But as I was running, um, you know, people knew me. They knew that I was the one who wrote a grant for this and implemented this program or volunteered for the back-to-school events. And one of the things I found really helpful was that instead of me, although I did go door-to-door, um, relying on just people believing my message. I had people in each of the neighborhoods I represent able to go out and door knock for me. So they said to their neighbor, hey, I live here. This is what Christine has done for us. And I think that led a lot of credibility to it. Um, folks knew that, um, you know, I listened to what their needs were and then based my priorities on how to work things through on, on their priorities and not my own and that um, I was always going to follow through on what I said I was going to do. And I think that was that was really it. You know, you've been in the Board of Aldermen for two years. What has kind of been your, your, your big priorities there? And what's kind of been your, your general experience there? Because what I've noticed in my short time of following city politics is since you were, you've been elected, there's kind of been this influx of what I would consider energetic, independent-minded, smart female alderwomen who have kind of entered the fray that have kind of changed the the complexion of it a little bit. That's just my observation. I'm not trying to exemplify your gender or anything too much, but I think the the newest members are are pretty much all female at this point. Um, What's kind of been your view? Well, I definitely believe that we need more women in politics, especially at the board. Um, Women bring a different perspective um, than, than men can, just the same as we need a variety of diversity to make sure that we're representing well all the constituents that live in the city. Um, I've been really pleased with the number of colleagues I've been able to um, work on important issues with, not just the younger, energized women, but older women, Lida Krusen, has been um, a real champion of a lot of our causes, as has um, older woman Donna Berenger. And um, I think that some of the elections we have coming up um, hopefully will generate some additional, um, you know, passionate excitement about um, what's going on in the city. Mm-hmm. And, and for me in particular, you know, a lot of the work I do I found doesn't have to necessarily be done legislatively. A lot of it's working on um, economic development, um, working on some of the issues we have surrounding poverty and youth, um, violence prevention in the ward, and that's not always something that needs to be legislated. What do you see as the major issues facing a city right now? I mean, just in a general sense. I mean, as an alderman, the things that you feel like you have to deal with first and foremost. Well, I think poverty is a huge issue in the city, which leads to a variety of other problems with education and and violence in our community especially. And um, until we really get to the root cause of trying to fix those problems and not put Band-Aids on them, I don't think we're going to be able to have success in trying to determine, um, you know, the Band-Aid solutions clearly haven't been working. Now, of course, part of this, though, dealing with all that requires a solid economic base and income for the city. And I think that then brings in some of the stuff that we've been talking about off camera, like what may or may not happen with the Rams, what the economic impact is, and some of these other things. Well, let's kind of jump into the the fire of that issue a little bit. Um, I think this was kind of an issue that was kind of trick, uh, in the in the peripheral. I mean, there was always kind of this feeling that the Rams could possibly leave because they can go on a lease-to-lease, uh, not a lease-to-lease, a year-to-year yes. right. on their lease. I'm mixing up uh, words there. Um, but it became a little bit more real this week after the L.A. Times reported that Stan Kroenke has apparently come up with this plan to build a stadium in Inglewood, California, without taxpayer money, um, purportedly. And that kind of set up, like, red flags everywhere that 
you know, it's kind of doomsday for the Rams in St. Louis. Since the Edward Jones Dome is not in your ward, but it's pretty close to your ward, and it probably has an economic impact on on the entire city, um, what's kind of your, your, your general view of this entire situation, and especially the possibility of more public money going to a new stadium or revamping the Dome in general? Well, at this point in time, I'm I'm not really supportive of any more public money going in to support um, any football team, whether it be the Rams or another one. We, I believe, have a 30-year bond um, yes. that we've only paid 20 years on. Yes, yes. So you got ten, yeah, I covered way back when they got started. So, yes, right. got about 10 years left. Right. And so, you know, um, maybe unless there's an extension of those bonds, I, I can't imagine um, that it would be appropriate to ask the taxpayers to support any any additional funding for a football team. That being said, I do believe that having a football team is is very important for St. Louis, especially downtown. And I like that Governor Nixon has Peacock and Blitz working on this. I like the um, six, I think there are points that he made with respect to what he would like the state and city to do versus what he would not like them to do. And I will be interested to see what their report is to him. Um, I, I, I think you can go back and forth with respect to what's going to happen with with Kroenke, but like you said, it doesn't look good. Well, there there has been some proposals uh, about extending the bonds and, in effect, you know, putting putting a longer to add so they can use so they can come up with money to either revamp the dome or build a new one or whatever. And what's interesting is that when this all started twenty some years ago, the idea was you build the dome, they will come, and so he, and. Whether one agrees or disagrees with that philosophy, that's sort of what some are talking about now if they're talking about building some sort of new dome because it's unclear that even if they did, that Kroenke would keep the team here. I personally think that the gentleman, he wants to be in California, which which kind of negates the whole fight about low taxes versus high taxes. I think he wants to be in California for whatever reason, and um, I think that's something that St. Louisans have to figure out maybe a substitute team or whatever. But I got a more broader question. Do you think it's valuable, both on an economic level and as on a pride level, for St. Louis to have a football team? I'd like to think so. I mean, I've not looked at the numbers. I guess one thing of note is um, I think there are probably about eight home games a year in, in the NFL season and maybe a couple of preseason games. I don't know what that looks like um, with the dollars that come in due to tourism and people eating out at restaurants, but um, I think that's something that we need to look at a little bit more closely. And it's definitely a, a, a pride thing, and it's definitely a tourist attraction. A perception thing. Some things. Some say it's a perception as far as keeping Missouri, keeping St. Louis in one of the upper tier cities when corporations are looking where to locate. I'm not saying it's true or not. But, but, but that's the re- the here's the reason that. I asked that question. I can think of many fabulous cities that don't have an NFL team. San, San Antonio, Portland, Oklahoma City, Omaha. Uh, all those cities have been seen as cities on the rise in various different ways. None of them have an NFL team. None of them are falling off the face of the earth. Now, Most I'll of be- them had an NBA team. What'd you say? Most of them had an NBA team. Granted, St. Louis's economic situation is a little more perilous than a lot of those cities, and that might exemplify that status if they do leave. But I'm just wondering whether it's the be-all, end-all for, for our city's economy. What yeah, do you I, think? I don't think it's the be-all, end-all for the city's economy. Would I like to see an NFL team here? Absolutely, for a lot of reasons. For you know, I think the Rams fans have proven that they're willing to support a team. I, I, I believe that 
the attendance was sold out every year from 95 through 2003. And even yes. after their, you know, really bad streak of losing, the games were st- still fairly well attended. Um, so obviously there are quite a few people that are living in St. Louis and the surrounding areas who do find it important. And so um, for those folks and, and for the economic benefit, I think we should exhaust, you know, the remedies that we think we can utilize um, in a responsible way to keep an NFL team here. What do you think could be done with the with the dome if the Rams were to leave? What what could that be utilized for? Well, it's mainly used now for, I mean, yeah. the Rams are only there a few, few right. days a year, as she was talking about. Go ahead. Well, I, yeah, I just, I mean, to, I'm sure the commissioner's Visitors Bureau has uh, a myriad of folks who spend time there throughout the year for a variety of types of events. And, you know, it could continue to be a venue for that. Um, I mean, the mayor contends that we could actually get more conventions because there's some dates that have to there's some weeks that have to be blocked out because the Rams Rams. are going to be there. You could make an argument that conventions actually may have a better impact on the surrounding businesses, because when you go to a Rams game, it's kind of this. What is it? I'm trying to think of the word here, but it's kind of like you're gated in and you buy food there and you buy souvenirs there. Conventions are a different story. You go to the convention center, you go to restaurants surrounding them. It it may actually be a net positive, but I'm not an economist. I know that you're not a trained economist, so you don't know the answer, but... I'm sure you've heard that type of argumentation too. If I'm sure, honest. sure, no, absolutely. I think it's a it's a valid point. And to expand on what you were saying, when people are at conventions, they're also downtown for longer than a couple of hours on an you know an afternoon. They're going to be there for a few days to a week. And so at this point, I mean, I think one of the reasons we brought up the NBA thing is that many cities they either have one or the other. You know, I mean, you either have an NBA team or you got an NFL team, which is separate from. You know the baseball teams, which is a whole different, a whole different. I, I don't world. think we're going to lose our baseball team. No, but that's a whole different world. You know, <laughs> understood. But, but the, you know, I mean, when when, when you look back, um, there was a lot of dire stuff talked about in the '80s, back when we had the Cardinal baseball team and the Cardinal football team, and they were both using Bush Stadium. And then, if you remember, the football team left because of the fight over not building anything, mm-hmm. and then we ended up. A few years later, building something. Of course, the Cardinals were already ensconced then in Arizona, and then we ended up with the well, with I, the Rams. I, I, I'm on record saying we should definitely have an NBA team here, but I'm from the Chicagoland suburbs, and NBA is very dominant. I know Chris is also pro NBA as well. But. I, I would, I would. Well, I'm the daughter of a basketball coach, so I have to. But let, <laughs> but, but we could talk sports myself. all day long. But let's let, <laughs> let's kind of transition to another another topic that's kind of been on the forefront in recent months, and I think that's policing and crime and the impact of Ferguson on St. Louis. Now, um, both of both me and the older woman were at a meeting recently of the Ferguson Commission in Shaw, and it was a very tense meeting where the crowd got very animated and angry at um, Chief Sam Dotson, uh, the St. Louis police chief. Um, for background, for our listeners who don't know, there was a shooting in Shaw a, a few months ago of Von Derrick Myers. Um, it was a few weeks after the Michael Brown and it was, shooting. It kind of caused a flare-up of protest in and around um, Shaw. Not actually, the, 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 as a kind of an aside, I noticed it was a lot of the protests weren't actually in Shaw proper. They were outside of it in, on South Grand, which I guess is in Tower Grove South, um, if I'm not mistaken. It's in between Tower Grove East and Tower Grove South. But the point is, when we were there, there was a lot of visible anger about that situation. And I kind of, in my mind, was juxtaposed against what I saw in my 
neighborhood of St. Louis Hills in the 16th Ward, where the when the tree lighting ceremony happened there, the police uh, chief was there and got pretty much a warm, glowing reception. And the reason that stuck out in my mind is I, I love St. Louis Hills a lot enough to live there, but I'm I'm not blind. St. Louis Hills is 99% white and has probably a lot of police officers live there. And Shaw is much more diverse in many respects. And that kind of exemplified to me kind of the divide in perception. I actually kind of talked with you off the cuff about that, but kind of like you to respond to the to that and just kind of your view of that entire perception of police post-Ferguson. And I think the issue that demonstrators have is bigger than just Chief Dotson or any current officer that you might know on the street. Um, I'm in an interesting position because I consider very many police officers, close friends of mine and colleagues who I work with every day to try and solve, um, you know, our issues in the sixth ward. And I also represent um, and am friends with a good number of demonstrators. And so I'd like to think I see both sides of the argument. Um, Does the police department have room for improvement? Absolutely. Um, Should there be the deep distrust um, of the police in general and not just, you know, going after officers who are doing the wrong thing? I don't really see that um, as being 100 percent accurate. And so... I'm happy that at least Chief Dotson is willing to have the conversation about what we can do moving forward. And although some of the demonstrators, um, I think, would like to think we haven't done a lot, we've got body cameras on the table. We've got civilian oversight on the table. Um, We're talking with the Ferguson Commission. I'm having some youth from Clinton Peabody, where I represent, go out to the next meeting this Saturday um, out in North County. It's their big youth input day. And so I think we're going to get to a place, um, but we're going to have to have both sides agree that they're not 100% right on everything that they're advocating for, and that both sides are going to have to do some changing in order to get to a, a place where everyone can be more trustful of each other. What do you think is kind of driving this divide in perception of the police, where you go to one ward and people love the police, and then you go to maybe a more predominantly African-American ward? And there's a little bit more distrust there. Or you may go to a predominantly African-American ward and they may like the police just fine. I don't want to, mm-hmm. like, overgeneralize here. I know, for example, in the 27th ward, uh, Chris Carter's ward, I've heard that there are some deep relationships between the police and the community there. But it does seem like in other wards it's a lot different. What do you think is kind of driving the, the divide between perceptions? Well, you know, I live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, the Gate District, and I remember – moving in and befriending the two women who live next door to us. And they were raising two young African-American boys. And one of them was about to get his driver's license. And they hired a retired St. Louis City police officer who was African-American who specifically hired himself out to work with kids who were black because he knew and their parents knew that they were going to have probably a different situation sometimes when they got pulled over by police or were seen walking down the street. Um, And I think those are the sorts of things that are causing alarm. Again, unfortunately, um, because the city has allowed and I think the nation has allowed for um, African-Americans to remain in this cyclical poverty sometimes, um, that is who is committing the preponderance of the crimes. So it's a back and forth. I mean, does profiling occur? Absolutely. But 
Is there a reason for that sometimes? Probably. And um, that's why I think going back to the, the root causes of what's actually going on in order to help the African-American community in St. Louis. And I, I think it, I see it in other areas. I went to Notre Dame High School in um, Lime. Some of the very same issues there exist with um, poverty in the white community. Right, right. I, I know you serve on the Public Safety Committee, and you brought up a couple of things that that committee is considering, body cameras for police officers, civilian oversight of the police department. Um, you know, those things have been considered for a while. What's, what's the timeline that we're looking at now? Well, we go back this Friday, tomorrow, from recess over the holiday, and we've had some changes in the chairmanships of the committees because Alder right. Woman Young resigned. And so right. Terry Kennedy, who was the sponsor of the Civilian Oversight Board bill, um, is over public safety now. So I'd imagine we'll have a hearing on it pretty quickly. Um, if it's not on the agenda tomorrow for the following week, I'd be surprised. And, um, you know, overwhelmingly, I think most aldermen co-signed on that. Um, I was a little bit disappointed. There were a lot of folks at the table with Alderman Kennedy drafting that bill, but nobody um, looped in the Police Officers Association. And um, I think that's unfortunate because I think they should have been at the table to have um, their two cents put in. And so I I know that they've reached out to Alderman Kennedy with some of their ideas for changes. Um, I think even they understand that some sort of um, oversight board will happen. So I I would imagine rather quickly with respect to passing. And if I'm not if I'm not mistaken here, this oversight board can't have subpoena power now because of you would have to amend the, the charter, basically? That's correct, yeah. yes. So um, a lot of people on the demonstrator side of the community don't think it, this bill goes far enough because there is no subpoena power. Um, if that happens, it would have to be under a separate right. bill. Yeah. And then the other um, point of contention I've heard is that folks would like to see representatives elected as opposed to appointed um, to the board. And I guess what what's going to happen is the mayor will appoint and the Alder, board of aldermen um, will confirm them, basically. Well, so each district, I think there are seven districts that will have representatives. And so it's about three or four wards mm-hmm. um, make up each district. And those aldermen make recommendations to the mayor. Mm-hmm. And the mayor then would uh, – um, recommend the appointment. And one thing that's written in the bill that I think is kind of interesting is sort of um, an approval process of the appointees, um, almost like a Senate, a U.S. Senate approval process. Mm -hmm. So the community and aldermen will have a chance to ask questions of the folks who are being considered. Okay. Because I know when we we talk, uh, when there have been kind of theoretical uh, discussions about whether the mayor should, for example, appoint the recorder of deeds or some of the other county offices, there's kind of a sub-debate on whether there should be Board of Aldermen approval on that. And there are some who are like, no, we don't want them to go through that because when it goes through the U.S. Senate process, it cuts very political. But on kind of the other hand, you don't – and I'm, I, if Mayor Slay is listening to this, I'm not directing this at you. But if you have just a mayor who is completely incompetent and starts appointing people who are terrible for those jobs and there's no kind of bulwark there – you, you could have actual real-life implications for the city. So, for example, you point, let's say, we're, let's kind of get into this fantasy land. You appoint a recorder of deeds who is absolutely incompetent and people can't close their houses on time in the city. That's that's a real problem for people. So this, this rambly observation kind of may extend to this situation where you don't want a mayor who's appointing people to this board who's 
who's just kind of making bad decisions, and that's why you have that check and balance. Yeah, there. but if you have the alderman making the recommendations, then you're that could be another. Check arguably, right there. you know, you would have it's sort of like the selection of judges, where you have these judicial panels that pick the nominees, and the governor picks one. And it's not it's not perfect, but it, but there is at least more than one person looking at. Because it. I understand the mayor should have a lot of power over this. There are consequences to elections, and I do think the executive needs to make these decisions. But I guess you want that safeguard in the case you have um, a really terrible mayor making decisions. So Right, and I think that's probably where the folks who were at the table coming up with how they thought the oversight board should look, um, that's what they were thinking. And the fact of the matter is um, no law is unchangeable and this sort of um, civilian oversight process is fairly new to the United States, and I think it's very feasible to say we could start doing one thing and see that something wasn't working and go back and fix it if, if necessary. So let's kind of transition into your a very exciting reelection battle. Um, <laughs> unlike, He's being sarcastic. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the and reasons we picked you. this is in the March, March. primary. Um, the spoiler alert, you did not draw a Democratic opponent. You do have a Republican opponent. But, in the April election. But um, from, from what I've kind of gathered in city politics, the only wards where I think a Republican could conceivably win is my ward, the 16th ward, the 12th ward, 12th ward. Mm-hmm. and maybe under certain circumstances, the 23rd. The rest are so heavily Democratic that winning the primaries tantamount to election. So um, also, and kind of kind of a subplot to it, um, the, the big ticket race in this cycle was supposed to be the Board of Aldermen President's election. We had uh, President Reid on the show, I think, in 2013, mm-hmm. and he expected to have a viable opponent. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, his opponent is Jimmy Matthews, who's a perennial candidate. Before we get to that, though, um, you know, were you kind of surprised that you didn't draw a Democratic opponent and that you're basically getting another four years without opposition, essentially? I was surprised. Um, I definitely heard rumors for the past few months that I would have someone run against me. Um, So I was prepared for um, a primary battle. Um, I'm not sure why that didn't happen. Um, but as I mentioned off the air to you, um, I love knocking on doors, but just did so a year and a half ago. So I'm okay with, um, not having to hustle quite as much. I'm not going to take it for granted that Mm -hmm. I can, I can, um, beat a green party and Republican candidate, but it's definitely not quite the fight as as it would be. Now, does the the fact that you didn't get a Republican, a democratic challenger, does that signal that the Democrats in your ward have generally, coalesce behind you or is it that your whatever democratic opposition you have within your own party they don't feel that they're strong enough yet to take you on i think it's probably a little of both i think that anybody who is thinking about running against me probably realizes that um i think right now i enjoy a reasonable amount of support in the ward through my constituents and I'd like to think that's because I do such a good job, but maybe it's because I've only been there for a year and a half and haven't had time well, to one of the make inter- people mad yet. Well, I was kind of – one of the things that I thought was interesting – interesting is always a very bland word to, to, to use. But, you know, one of the things I've noticed in St. Louis City politics is when people run against each other, there's like these lifelong grudges and constant political battles against each other. Look, like the 24th Ward, Waterhouse and Bauer running for like the 30th time against Ogilvy. That's kind of part and parcel there. But you kind of did a lot of bridge building 
to your former opponents. I kind of gotten the sense that you and Damon Jones are at least on pretty good terms at, after the election. And you and Michelle Whithouse actually worked together with participatory budgeting, which was kind of her big issue. So I guess when you kind of, I don't want to say use the word like mollify or neutralize, but when you actually like go to your former adversaries and, you know, try to build bridges, it seems like that is kind of part and parcel why maybe you don't have opposition. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I, I like to think so. Um, I'm not a, the kind of person who holds a grudge. I'm also not a typical politician. And so I think that, you know, there is something to be said for reaching out to your former opponents. Michelle and Damon both had about 500 votes each. And so there, those people thought that Damon or Michelle could do a better job than I did. So I reached out to them to say, hey, you know, what did I not say that I should be saying or what can I be working on? And um, hopefully the residents understand that. And um, anybody who was thinking about running against me this time, um, maybe we'll wait till next time. Are, are there any races that you're going to be watching closely or are you even going to get involved in any of the other candidates' races? I'm getting involved in one race that's in the seventh ward. Mm-hmm. I'll be endorse, uh, endorsing Chelsea Murta for that race. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think she and Jack are both qualified candidates. I've known Jack. I worked with Jack. Give his last name. Coder. Oh, Jack okay. Coder. For our and this is to replace the older woman that just stepped down. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And um, worked for him on the Obama campaign prior to his 08 election. And um, just I'm really inspired and kind of floored by Chelsea's um, passionate, really active intentional ways of wanting to change city government and uh, improve upon what we have. There's another aspect I want to ask you about your race and also the 20th Ward race. Um, One of your colleagues, Alderman Antonio French, was on Twitter actively basically imploring African-American candidates to not only run against you, but to run against Craig Schmidt of the, the 20th Ward. Now, kind of a little bit of recent background. The 20th Ward is also a majority black district. I think it's actually higher than than yours. But since redistricting in 2001, I think, there has never been a viable African-American candidate who's run against them. It's really just been the viable opponents to Craig Schmidt has been elements of the Cherokee Street business community that, for whatever reason, don't like them. There's reams of material there. Mm -hmm. But what was kind of your reaction when you know, you, one of your colleagues said something like that, that, you know, without maybe disparaging you, that you're, you're the pe- person representing a majority black ward should be black as opposed to white, essentially. Well, I always think that we need to be paying attention to the diversity on the board, not just racially, but socioeconomically in a variety of other ways. Um, I have said to people before, and I'll say it again, I'm never going to be a lot of things. I'm never going to identify as LGBT. I'm never going to be African-American. That doesn't mean that I can't serve those populations very well by educating myself, by listening, and by acting on the um, issues that are important to those folks. And so I don't fault Alderman French for bringing that up at all. I think it's something worth paying attention to. But I think also if you go by his logic, if an African-American has to represent a predominantly African-American ward, then do predominantly Caucasian wards have to be represented by Caucasian representatives? Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, that would imply that Charlie Dooley shouldn't have been the county executive for 11 years in a, or that, in a county know, that was 80 percent white. Or that, you know, a, a, a perfectly viable candidate should never run in the 16th ward. I mean, I understand the realities here. It would be difficult for an African-American to win in a 95 percent white ward. But just in state politics, we had Shemed Dogan of Baldwin, who probably is representing maybe, what, 
5% black state rep district who just was elected as a state representative. So it's not out of the question. And I don't want to, like, belittle the fact that there are challenges for, for a black candidate to do that. But I kind of see your point there. So, But as far as, like, President Reid goes, were you surprised he didn't draw a viable opponent and that he's going to get four more years basically unopposed? And what do you think that's going to mean for the relationship between the mayor and and the legislative branch that he's going to be there for the next four years, essentially? I was surprised that Lewis Reed did not draw competition. Um, I think there were a couple of people who were, um, one of whom announced her candidacy, the other um, who was definitely thinking about it. Um, I get along well with Lewis overall. Um, The board is able to accomplish things despite the various people who don't get along with each other. You know, it it would be great to see the president's office and the mayor's office come to some type of resolution where they're able to work a bit better together, but I don't think it's necessary for the city to move forward. I guess there, and Joe would have more uh, background knowledge than than me, but I guess just from, I, I don't think their relationship is particularly close since they ran against each other, but I guess there have been far more angrier relationships. Oh, yes. And I could do a whole separate show on that, which I won't. But just trust me. There have been predecessors in the mayor's office and the um, uh, board of aldermen president's office who were much, much more combative than these two. All right. Well, we'll have to cut it off there. Uh, To close this out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at CSMcDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And Older Woman, you can be followed on Twitter as well. At Chrissy, C-H-R-Y-S-S-I. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.